Jewel Radio presents What She Said with Christine Bentley and Kate Wheeler. Women positive news you can use. Good evening, everyone. I'm Christine Bentley, and you're listening to What She Said, brought to you by Roar Publishing from concept to content. Uh, Kate Wheeler is away exploring Rio this weekend. Wouldn't we all love to be there? But you're going to hear her in a few segments later on. We're kicking off the show tonight talking to the author behind an intimate biography of Joni Mitchell. David Yaffe has written what he says is the closest thing we will ever get to her memoir, He's going to tell us why that is and what drew him into writing about this particular artist. Uh, we're also going to be joined by comedian Deborah Kimmett. She's looking at the bright side of life with her new one-woman stand-up show called The Year of the Suddenly. And that's about how her rocky relationship with her brother changed after he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And the end result is pretty darn eye-opening and, of course, very, very funny uh, because she's, she's, she's actually hysterical. YouTube star, vegan chef, and now author Candace Hutchings is going to tell us about her cookbook, which is called The Edgy Veg, 138 Carnivore-Approved Vegan Recipes, uh, and the carnivore being her husband, <laughs> who loves meat. And these recipes are all about making something taste like family favorites. Just the sound of some of them will make your mouth water. She is actually giving away a free copy to one lucky listener. So stay tuned for that. As usual, every Saturday, we are joined by film critic Ann Brody, who previews what's going on at the movies and on TV for the weekend. Candace Derricks um, is going to be joined by Amber Balsian, the first Canadian woman to win a NASCAR-sanctioned race, and Jeff Weeb, a tire expert from Cal Tire, to discuss winter tire myths. Amazing. I didn't know there were winter tire myths. I can't wait to find out. And closing out the show this evening, we have Eileen Joyce. We talked to her a few weeks ago about living with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and her upcoming gala. But tonight she's performing in our live studio sessions. Another great contest to tell you about tonight. What She Said and Best Buy Canada want to help you take charge of your health. We're giving away a Fitbit Charge 2 fitness tracker. It's exclusive for What She Said subscribers. So head over to whatshesaidtalk.com and look for the subscribe button. We'll be sending out another newsletter shortly with the link for new subscribers. We also want to congratulate Kathy Hawkins Downey, who is going home with an Avino absolutely ageless gift pack. So don't go anywhere. What She Said will be right back with Reckless Daughter, author David Yaffe. <laughs> Today's the day to try something new. Second City Training Center is home to North America's largest school of improv. Whether you're looking to build confidence through a public speaking class, test out some new material at the stand-up drop-in series, or just want to stop by and see what's up with improv, they'd love to have you. Visit them online today at secondcity.com tc or call... 416-340-7270. 
don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. Rolling Stone called her one of the greatest songwriters ever, and there is no doubt that Canada's own Joni Mitchell will take her place as one of the most important and influential female recording artists of the late 20th century. Joining us now is the author of The Closest Thing We Will Ever Get to Her Memoir. It's called Reckless Daughter. Welcome, David Yaffe, to what she said. Thank you for having me. For anyone who doesn't know, why is this the closest thing we will ever get to her memoir? Well, it makes me uh, sad to talk about it this way, but in fact, it's probably true because um, our final interview, which was a sometimes bracing but always fascinating 15-hour encounter, uh, and then a few long phone calls after that were right before she suffered a cerebral aneurysm. And that was March 31st, 2015. And since then, she has not spoken in public at all. And I think it's likely she may not ever give another interview. So I, and and, uh, she was constantly revising her thoughts on the past. And so I was, in a way, getting her last testament. This is a very uh, healthy book size. Mm. Uh, how many hours do you think you spoke to her? Mm. If you were to put it all together, it would take weeks. If you were to play everything wall to wall, it would probably take weeks to, to hear it all. And that doesn't even include the things that weren't recorded. And how long was the process of interviewing her? Or talking to her. I first talked to her in January of 2007. I had an, yes, I know. Uh, I had an assignment from the New York Times. And uh, our first encounter was 12 hours. And um, each subsequent conversation was pretty lengthy. So we talked for a while, for a couple of years off and on. And then that stopped. And then it's, and then I talked to everybody else that I could. Um including a lot of musicians, mm-hmm. which when I did start talking to her again, she really respected the fact that I talked to musicians and on a level that journalists don't get to mostly. So after a while, I would name the person that I talked to and she would say, oh yeah, well, what did he say? Or sometimes she would say, oh yeah, what did that slimy bugger say? And so she would always want to one-up whatever that person said. And this ended up filling in an enormous amount of detail. For, and, you, and it was very useful. Well, this, though, started as an assignment and spanned years. So this was a, a really a labor of love for you. You were, you were obviously passionate. What mm-hmm. was it about her in particular that so took your fancy as a, as a, as a writer, as a journalist, as a... Well... First of all, I was playing a pretty long game because I was planning this book before I even interviewed her for the New York Times. Um, And it really goes back to when I first fell in love with her music when I was 15. And um, between then and when I first talked to Joni, which was when I was 34, um, I realized that everything that I had learned that was not about Joni Mitchell somehow led me to Joni Mitchell. Because I learned, for example, a lot about Charles Mingus, and he collaborated with Joni Mitchell on his final project before he died of Lou Gehrig's disease. 
uh, learning a lot about Billie Holiday and Miles Davis or Debussy, learning about poetry, even though she wasn't somebody who was even that interested in poetry. Um, It helped me appreciate her language. And so I felt like everything, and the other books that I'd written before this one, one of them was about jazz and American writing, and the other was about Bob Dylan. And so all of this was in a way a tributary to, to Joni. Everything mm-hmm. had led up to it. And then, and then everything that I experienced emotionally seemed to also lead up to it, um, including charting the rise and fall of romantic relationships, which is one of her great subjects. But how onerous is it to write a biography of someone you so admire and are mm-hmm. so drawn to, given you also want to share the truth and nothing but the truth? Yeah, that was a challenge, and you you uh, described that very well. Um, and my ambition was to write something that was like a Joni Mitchell song. I wanted to write something that was beautiful and that was filled with love and passion and also absolutely honest, even if it made the listener or the reader or the subject uncomfortable. Did you make her uncomfortable at times? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Sometimes I made her uncomfortable because she would say things to me that then she would be uncomfortable having told me. Was one of them, um, given that she was from the era of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, mm-hmm. she beat a cocaine addiction? You write about? Yeah. I have a... The way that she described that is so hard to believe, but I'm going to take her word for it because, you know, she had this great Buddhist teacher, Trungpa, and uh, she claims that just as he got her to what she called level four Buddhism in 15 minutes. In 15 minutes? Yes. Something that people would spend, you know, when Leonard Cohen did it, he spent years on on Mount Baldy. Yeah. there was no fast way for Leonard Cohen. He did the slow way, but Joni did the fast way, 15 minutes. But he did the same thing with cocaine, something that people have a lot of trouble getting off of. By the way, she got back on cocaine pretty quickly after that. <laughs> just to be clear, she just took a little hiatus from it. It's a it. short quit. Yeah, it's a short. It was yeah. a little C-Zero, that's all. So what surprised you the most about her after all those years of conversations and talking to other people? and? Um. I was very surprised as a literary scholar how little she cared about poetry. You know, we, I certainly, this is a very old idea. This term comes out of Aristotle's poetics, mimesis or mimesis. Uh, One learns by imitation, right? Just like, you know, a a little person learns how to put on pants by watching a big person put on pants. And so, you know, you have like Harold Bloom's anxiety of influence theory that like poets become great when they misread their greatest influence and then they become strong poets. And I was so used to thinking in this way because this is the way most of art is made. It's a kind of an apprenticeship. And so it's really strange that somebody could write lyrics as amazing as Joni's and not really care about poetry and I tried reading her poetry to see if I could persuade her to like anything, and I was completely unsuccessful. I, I read her Elizabeth Bishop. I read her Robert Lowell. I read her Wallace Stevens. 
the only, the one thing that made the nickel go down the slot with her was when I read her um, um, Keats, Ode on Melancholy, and it happened that um, there's a recording of F. Scott Fitzgerald reading it. So I was kind of imitating the way F. Scott Fitzgerald was reading it. Mm-hmm. So she cut me off in the middle and she said, oh, that's a great poem, but I can't stand the way you're reading it. It's so maudlin. <laughs> really? <laughs> what was the importance of Joni's songs in relation to her life if she wasn't a poet? Mm-hmm. Because she really did catalog her era. Mm-hmm. She's described her songs as private letters that weren't published. Do you um, agree? Yes. You know, I agree when she says songs are like tattoos. Yeah. Um, she's so bracingly honest. And there is a complete lack of guile, which is unusual for pop music. Usually people, pop singers, even very, very good ones, they want you to like them. And Joni's the opposite. I mean, I know there's certain things. She got so angry once when I used the term turn on the charm. Because it seemed like in some of the early CBC, mm-hmm. you know, appearances that she made when she was just starting out, that she, she's wearing like these sparkly dresses and she's mm-hmm. charming. She, I said, she, you turn on the charm. She said, I don't turn on the charm. Judy Collins turns on the charm. Joan Baez turns on the charm. They're phonies. They turn on the charm. What you get from me is real. If I'm effusive, then that be, that's because I'm feeling that way. And that's what you get. And if I'm morose, then you get that. But you get as real. You know, David, we could, I could sit here and talk <laughs> to you for the next four weeks. But <laughs> what I really should do is read this book. Everybody should read this book. Where can they find it? At fine bookstores everywhere, Amazon.com. Uh, and where can we find out more about you? Oh, um, well, I am very findable by findable? email. Yes, because you know I have a university email right. that every, and people can reach in through. Uh, you know, I've, I have a Gmail account. People can find me. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you so much for this book. Um, I'm I I can't wait to read it. Uh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. This is what she said. We'll be right back. Join us October 22nd at Bellevue Manor in Vaughan for a morning of fun, learning, and great camaraderie. Learn how to stay sharp as you age with guest speakers Dr. Vivian Brown, Dr. Nazarene Katri, and MC Camilla Scott. A wonderful morning of breakfast, entertainment, special treats, and all proceeds go to Mackenzie Health Foundation to support the Domestic Assault and Sexual Abuse Center. Go to thejoyofaging.ca for more info and see you on October 22nd. Passion is everything when it comes to hair, so trust your hair to an artist. Jason Kearns of Kearns & Co. is known across North America for making the hottest high fashion looks work for real people. Jason and his team of expert stylists bring together creativity, vision, and the very latest hair care systems, color, and products to create looks that have heads turning. Your hair is the most important fashion accessory you will ever own. Trust it to the experts. Start today. Visit kernsandco.com. Everyone needs an edge to compete. At the Chang School of Continuing Education at Ryerson University, our courses and programs will equip you with skills that are in demand in today's workplace. Enroll now at the Chang School at Ryerson University, where ambition meets professionalism. 
Want to know more about the music and the musicians you love? Today we're talking about five bands that have been at it for a very long time. The entire album was recorded over three weekend sessions for a cost of $6,000. Whenever I do an impression of Bob Dylan, that's the only line that I do. Tangle up in blue. That's, that's it. And you that's, do it That's all I do. Well. I can't do it again. Do do it again. Tangle up in blue. <laughs> what that Eric Alper knows will spin your head Sundays on What She Said Talk. Back to What She Said with Christine Bentley and Kate Wheeler on Jewel Radio. I never can say goodbye. Welcome back to What She Said. Well, toss out that tired tofu and say hello to Tasty Tacos, Perfect Pizza, and Deluxe Burgers. Joining us now is YouTube star, vegan chef, and now author, Candace Hutchings. Her cookbook, The Edgy Veg, 138 Carnivore-Approved Vegan Recipes, comes out on Monday. Welcome to What She Said. Thank you so much for having me. So since beginning your, your YouTube cookery-related channel, The Edgy Veg, in October 2012, that long ago, now your videos have reached more than 9.8 million views. And you said you never wanted to write a cookbook. So what changed? <laughs> um, opportunity changed. I mean, I, like you said, I, I never had an interest in writing a book. I said to myself, everybody can get my recipes for free. Why would they buy a book? And I, we've run into some problems where, I mean, I like to do things my way. I like to say my jokes the way that I want to say them. I want to make the recipes the, the way I want to make them. And when we were approached by our publisher, Robert Rose, they really gave us free reign to try and translate the YouTube channel into a cookbook. And I found that to be very exciting. So, Okay. Now, the recipes have all been uh, approved by your husband and co-creator, James, an ex-carnivore, by the way. You turned him into a believer. I did. How, how did you do that? <laughs> I asked him what his favorite dishes were, and I worked tirelessly to make them vegan and make them almost the exact same as the traditional dish. Okay, so, so that, that that's what always gets me. It's like if, if being vegan is so good and good for you, good for health, good for the planet all around, why do we keep on wanting to create meat? Out of vegan recipes. Well, a lot of people don't go vegan because they don't like meat. Right. Um, they will go vegan whether it's for the environment or for animal reasons or their health. A lot of people don't feel well after they eat meat. They feel heavy. They feel bloated, etc. Um, and so the reason isn't that they don't like meat. It's, it's because they just want to feel better. They want to do something a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So instead of focusing on salads, smoothies, typical sort of vegan recipes that we would associate with that, you repurpose basically familiar family favorites, trendy dishes, comfort foods and desserts. So you keep it, uh, you keep people's menu almost the same with different ingredients. Exactly. I When I went vegan, there wasn't really all that much out there. It was eight years ago, almost nine years ago now. And I was bored and I said, if I'm going to keep doing this, I want to eat the foods that I grew up eating because so much of what we eat has nostalgia attached to it. There's memories, there's, you know, uh, tradition attached to them. So I wasn't willing to give that up. So I needed to find an alternative and I did the same thing for him. Well, this book would be fabulous for people because now there are families. If you get together with 22 people at Christmas or whatever, you're Mm going to find a group of them who are vegan. And they kind of sit on the side with some salad and veggies because it's difficult to create food. But this way, you could really almost have a vegan Christmas and people would not feel 
hard done by. That's exactly why I wrote the book. I wrote the book for vegans, but also the carnivores or omnivores in those vegan people's lives um, so that they could have their cookbook and make one meal for everyone. I spent many years making multiple different meals or having family members make multiple different meals because I was there. And this way, everything is enjoyed by both dietary preferences. And so you can only make one meal and that's great. So your husband, did he say this tastes exactly like grandma whatever's you know, shepherd's pie? Some of them exactly, some just good enough. Um, (laughs) And then we had to go back to the drawing board and and come up with different ways of doing it. Um, So we had him as well as a team of our friends and family that tested every single recipe and said, I would eat this over the meat counterpart. So let me ask you, if I took this book, could I have a dinner party and have non-vegans and vegans for dinner? Absolutely. And they wouldn't feel... Cheated? No, not at all. If I can recommend one recipe, it would be the butter chicken. Ooh, butter chicken. Yes. Made from what? Um, So there's a couple different ways that you can do it. You can do a meat substitute that you buy from the store, or in the book I have a recipe for um, something called seitan, uh, which is not... Um, you know, the devil down below. <laughs> um, um, but it's it's called wheat meat, and it's a uh, meat substitute made out of uh, texturized vegetable protein and wheat gluten. Well, I love the names. Listen to this, Kate. Not-so-boring salads. Uh, there's cob your enthusiasm, Brussels sprouts that don't suck, unorthodox locks. <laughs> Pretty smoked cool. Smoked salmon. Like, that's interesting. How do you, what, what, what is your smoked salmon made with? Believe it or not, carrots, which I know sounds not exciting at all. Um, but what I did was I looked at the traditional ways of curing salmon. And right. um, I had seen online that people do use carrots to do this. So I used a combination of seaweed and a vinegar marinating um, concoction with oils and spices. Um, it sits in the fridge for about 48 hours marinating and it makes the salmon very, very soft. And uh, it's it, the texture is very similar. Um, well, as well as the recipes, you include core fundamentals that you think everyone needs to know, whether you're an experienced chef or, or a first-time vegan cook. So what, what's an example of that? Uh, in the beginning of the book, we talk about, you know, the seitan that I mentioned earlier, um, how to make creams, cheese sauces, uh, homemade vegetable broth, all the fundamentals in the books, different sauces, spices, um, uh, spice combinations. Um, and then those recipes are used throughout the book over and over and over again. Um, have you ever been approached by some um, some of the fabulous restaurants here to to come and develop a menu for them so that they can all go out to a five-star restaurant and everybody's happy? I haven't, but that is actually something I would love to work on next. That I think that's kind of my next step. I would love to consult for restaurants saying, hey, you know, as a vegan or vegetarian, there's nothing on your menu. Mm-hmm. And um, I think you could bring in a totally different demographic or audience into your restaurant just by offering three or four really great options. Well, it's becoming more well-known. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I live next to, what's it called? It's Planta. It's Planta. Um, not terribly innovative, but, but uh, you know, maybe I should bring that book in. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> so you're going to revolutionize the food that we think about as vegan. Are you cons- constantly sort of researching new recipes? And, I mean, do people come to you and say, do one about this? Oh, Always. Always. And the first thing I do is research the traditional way of making that meal. Um, I feel like 
when we think of vegans, we think of weird ways that we that those people make food. They don't use salt. They don't use spices. So when I try to reinvent that dish in a vegan way, I look at the original spices used in that dish, the original method of cooking, and just kind of adapt knowing the Why can't we use spices? You said... Oh, a lot of people just think that vegan food is bland, that there's no spices involved. There's no salt. I was going to say. And that's not the case. Yeah, steam some green beans and plop some tofu down, and there it is. Right. When I first went vegan, that's what it was. Yeah. (laughs) Steamed or boiled vegetables. Yeah. (laughs) And I was not down with that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, are these recipes sort of nutritionally balanced, too, so people get their protein and their vitamins? I mean, because that that was always a concern Mm. with my friends whose children decided at a young age that they wanted to be vegan for conscience reasons, that they would be getting enough of a balanced nutrition. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not going to go out and say that this is a health book because it's not. It is comfort food. It's, you know, the traditional comfort foods that you had as a kid that we all have growing up, Mm -hmm. the foods that we turn to, there's desserts in there, but they are nutritionally balanced. There is a protein in almost everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can pair the, the different dishes together. The book was written so that you could take one meal out of each section or sorry, one dish out of each section to make a really well balanced meal. Mm. Sounds great. Yeah. So now, the Edgy Veg Cookbook is out on October 16th in store and online. And you are going to give one of our lucky uh, listeners and followers a copy of the Edgy Veg 138 Carnivore Approved Vegan Recipes. Where do people connect with you online? Um, so I have a YouTube channel called The Edgy Veg, so youtube.com slash edgy veg. I also have a website, theedgyveg.com. Um, and from there, you can find all the social media links from there, um, Instagram at edgy veg. And the book is available in stores, like you said, October 16th at Indigo. You can buy it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Chapters, anywhere that you buy a book. Well, I'm sure when people see this book, they'll be mm-hmm. asking, when is the next one coming out? Um, not, well, at least give me a year to relax after this one. (laughs) I have 138 more recipes to come up with first. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is what she said. Stay with us. Do you remember when you first fell in love with reading? Well, you weren't really reading, were you? No, your passion for books began quite another way. It was listening, wasn't it, to a story. Yes, your love of reading really got started when you were being read to. Kobo introduces audiobooks for the free Kobo app with a beautifully designed, easy-to-use player, one home for all your audiobooks and eBooks. Book lovers can listen to their heart's content for as little as $12.99 per month with subscription, and with a 30-day free trial, you get your first audiobook free. Sign up now at Kobo.com. What She Said is more than women-positive news. First, it's a radio show on the Jewel Network with a dedicated and growing audience of affluent men and women aged 35+. But What She Said is also a digital platform with thousands of followers, the ideal target market for your brand. What She Said features companies and trendsetters, those on the leading edge of fashion, business, lifestyle, entertainment, travel, technology, and finance. Get your brand on What She Said and get results. Go to whatshesaidtalk.com. 
Today's the day to try something new. Second City Training Center is home to North America's largest school of improv. Whether you're looking to build confidence through a public speaking class, test out some new material at the stand-up drop-in series, or just want to stop by and see what's up with improv, they'd love to have you. Visit them online today at secondcity.com slash TC or call 416-340-7270. Fear of missing out? FOMO flies out the door when you listen to Lena. Who knew? I hope everyone will know by the end of this segment. Every time you come in, you have such great news to share with us. Oh, thank you. I love sharing great news. Yes, I want everyone to know about it because it is such a great cause. I almost had tears in my eyes. Yeah. It is phenomenal. OMG. OMG. <laughs> Join What She Said Weekends and find out what lifestyle blogger Lena Almeida is loving. Back to What She Said with Christine Bentley and Kate Wheeler on Jewel Radio. Saturday night and the moon is Who cares what picture you see? And of course, joining us for Saturday Night at the Movies is our film critic, Anne Brody. How are you, Annie? Just great. What a week. What a week. What a week. And we're starting <laughs> out tonight with what was a dark horse at TIFF this year, The Florida Project, a movie about the residents of a welfare motel right outside the gates of Disneyland. Unreal, eh? Yeah. So you've got these poor, poor kids who refuse to go to school. Their parents don't really care. And they're running around. They inadvertently set a building on fire. Nobody finds out. And it's all set against the backdrop of Disney, where all these privileged kids are having a great time. So, and uh, Brooklyn Prince, who's a little girl. Actually, there's an interview with Brooklyn Prince and the woman who plays her mother on our YouTube station and on their website. Mm -hmm. Um, So the mother just does her own thing. She sells stolen perfume on the street. Uh, The little girl just doesn't do anything but have fun and indulge herself all day. Willem Dafoe is their, um, the motel manager. It's just a place full of colorful people with stories. And it may sound kind of strange, but it is so moving. And hmm. so engaging. You just love these people by the end of it. You mm. know, you, it's an irresistible film. So you should try and see this, Chris. I think okay. you'll like it. Um, Mark Felt, the man who brought down the White House? Ah, uh, yes. Here we are back at Watergate. That was quite the story. And it looks actually kind of tame compared to nowadays, doesn't it? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> So Liam Neeson plays uh, Mark Felt, who was Deep Throat, and um, Deep Throat's identity, he's the one who leaked what was going on at the Watergate uh, Watergate break-in to the Washington Post. Now, Mark Felt was only revealed as Deep Throat in 2005 because his family wanted him to. I don't really know why they would want him to. but So this is a portrait of what he went through behind the scenes before he leaked and how he dealt with the aftermath just a huge life-changing decision to make on his part Mm -hmm. you know and his he he can't tell anybody he's the head of the fbi he can't tell his his uh aides who are played by josh lucas and tony goldman we have an interview with tony on the website Mm -hmm. um he can't tell them what's happening because it would it would put everything in jeopardy and he can't afford to lose his job because the white house is so corrupt does it sound familiar? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go to something lighter. Christopher Robin. Goodbye, Christopher Robin. Yes, well, this is, we have a big Canadian connection to this story. Uh, 
um, the man who wrote uh, um, the Winnie the Pooh stories, mm-hmm. what, he and his child were inspired by a Canadian bear that they saw in the London Zoo, whose name was Winnie. And I think that was named, he was named, the bear was named after Winnipeg. And then um, Pooh was the name of a swan they met somewhere on their travels. So the world was very bleak and dark there. It was, the war had just ended and people needed to be cheered up. He was, he was actually, A.A. Milne was actually asked to write a story about what they'd been through and to reassess and, and view the war and its effect on it. But, you know, people didn't want to hear that. He knew that, so he created this these uh, fairy tales uh, with his child that became international sensations. Mm-hmm. Yes, so, is this a grown up film? Do you think, or would it be more uh, more all, an all family? I think it's it's I think it's an all family, yeah. except there are war scenes at the beginning. Yeah, so you know that's that's always a more tough. serious. What about the Limehouse Golem? Oh, that's incredible. Well, a golem is a character in Jewish mythology. Mm -hmm. Um, an evil uh, character who disturbs things. So this is set in London in the Music Hall Mm -hmm. district, uh, the turn of the last century. Um, And some gruesome murders start to happen across London, and then it hits the Music Hall. So we have all these characters in the troupe trying to protect themselves from this. We have Bill Nighy as the inspector who's investigating, and he has a lot of intuitive things. And some new untested techniques he's using to uncover the... It's the most shocking ending, and I, I can't tell you, obviously. But mm-hmm. it is so chilling, so gothic, Victorian um, horror. <laughs> it's so good, I can't tell you. <laughs> it's just grand. So, yeah, that's a good one to see. You know, we, we're barely touching touching the, the things that you've reviewed for us. Thank goodness yeah, it's going to so be up on the website. But right. uh, quickly, no reservations. Oh, yes. Lauren Cardinal stars as the head of the Indigenous Corporation. And it's a, it's a satire. It's a twist on what would happen if uh, Indigenous peoples overtook a white community and put a pipeline through. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. So it's part of the uh, Real World, World Film Festival, and it's uh, on up at Canada Square now. So <laughs> check That's it out. Wonderful. So everybody can check out your... My, blo- my blog. blog and and, uh, yeah, and there, let's not forget the interviews with Tony Goldwyn and yeah. then the mother and daughter from Florida Project. Thanks for cutting those, Alex. Yeah. Always and, do a good job. Thanks so much, Annie, You're for welcome. joining us this You're evening. Welcome. And we will talk to you next week. You will. He sings a little song as we go along, walking in a all right, Angelo does have a good reason for playing that song. Candace Derricks from Life in Pleasantville is here, and she has brought guests. Amber Balkan, who is the first Canadian woman to win a NASCAR-sanctioned race. Congratulations, Amber. And Jeff Weeb, a tire expert from Cal Tire. Welcome to What She Said. Thank you. And Candace, I'm guessing we're talking winter tires here. It was just just a guess. <laughs> uh, just a wild guess. You know, this is um, actually a little known fact about me. I actually love winter and I love traveling in the winter. And I've been working with Cal Tire for a few years now. And it's so important that Canadians get their winter tires on. So I have guests here today to talk about the why and the how and the when. Okay. Okay. So uh, let, let's let's start. Right. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, winter tires. There's lots of myths around winter tires. There's lots of myths around tires in general. What we're sort of talking about today is the seven degree switch 
seven degrees is kind of a benchmark in the tire industry. You've got uh, the, the ambient temperature really affects how grippy the tires are by how pliable they are. Mm-hmm. Below seven degrees, we know all season tires or kind of what we've renamed them three season tires. They lose their pliability. They don't grip the road the same under temperatures uh, at temperatures under seven degrees Celsius. So what we're talking about today, um, that's kind of the point where you want to be aware. It's time to put the winter tires on. Mm -hmm. Uh, The month of October is generally where we hit that average. So Southern Ontario, it's usually mid to third week of October. Uh, That's when you want to get those winter tires on so that you're prepared for we, what we know is going to come, for sure. Well, so like we were talking about earlier, too, but one of the things you said was, you know, you don't wait until you're just about in an accident to put your seatbelt on. Mm. You don't wait to put your tires on. Get them on now. Now is the time. And not only that, but the minute that they say a big storm's coming, you can't get your tires on. <laughs> yeah, we know that. <laughs> so, Amber, let's say you're, you're the professional driver among us. What do you, how do you feel about the different tires? Yeah, absolutely. Well, this campaign really resonated with me. Being a race car driver, I'm used to uh, having different types of tires for different Slicks. track conditions. Yes, and you know what? It really is the same way with a passenger vehicle as well. You need uh, summer tires in the summer and winter tires in the winter because like Jeff said the uh, compound of the tires it it hardens at seven degrees so it's important safety more than anything to make that switch so that your car can stop properly and your car can handle properly through the corners Um, it doesn't matter how good of a driver you are I like to think I'm a pretty good driver I do it for a living and even I know that my skill set can only get me so far when it comes to Mm -hmm. um, driving in the winter conditions driving on ice and snow and in the cold weather conditions. So um, that that traction of winter tires is going to be what helps your vehicle perform and keep you safe. Now, I have a question. I've always heard that if you drive your snow tires and it gets warm, it ruins them. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, Mm -hmm. for four months. So I think a lot of people said, oh, no, I don't want to do it yet because we got a couple days next week. They're going to be 20 and it'll wreck my tires. Is that really true? Well, I would I would challenge the word ruin. Okay. All tires are designed to wear out, okay? Uh, Aww. I know. Isn't that something? <laughs> no tire out there is going to last forever. They always wear, and that's actually how they work because they're soft and they do you know, shed rubber as they wear. You're absolutely right. A winter tire, because of the softer rubber compound, will wear at a higher rate in higher temperatures. Now, we're not condoning, yeah, just don't worry about them then and run them year-round. What we're saying is... You know, you put them on prior to that seven degrees, it's going to be a couple, three weeks. Yeah, they're going to wear a little bit faster. But just like what we were saying before, um, you know, if you put your seatbelt on at the beginning of your three-hour drive, it's going to wrinkle your shirt up a little bit more if you put it on when you start the drive Mm -hmm. than if you put it on just as you get to the highway. Mm -hmm. It's a safety factor, okay? Mm -hmm. The winter tires, you own them for safety, they need to be in place when the vehicle is at risk on those slippery surfaces, for sure. Okay, so um, answer me this. Would you replace them? Do you have them on rims or do you just replace the tires? Great question. You can do either. Uh, it's less work, of course, if they're already fitted on rims and it's a little bit less money to get them switched back and forth if you do make that purchase up front of the second set of rims. So some people, um, certain vehicles, maybe the rims are a little bit harder to get or more expensive. Um, For for those people, maybe they're going to change back and forth. 
Maybe they keep the vehicle for a short amount of time and they're not sure if the tires are going to fit on their next vehicle. So it's kind of a point by point, uh, you know, specific situation that we'll look at with a customer and we'll say, okay, is, is a second set of rims going to pay for you or should we just stick with the two sets of tires on the mm-hmm. single set of rims? There's a lot of different factors going into it and it sort of depends on the vehicle, the driver and so on. Okay. Um, any any last thoughts, Amber, about the importance of winter tires? Yeah, I mean, I think it really comes down to safety. I wouldn't hop in my race car without putting on my helmet, and uh, people should treat winter tires the same. Once it hits the seven degrees, make sure you're switching from your all-season to your winter tires um, so that you have that traction underneath you to be able to keep you safe and the drivers around you safe as well. Yeah, and there are people who say, oh, it doesn't make any difference, mm-hmm. but I've seen them try oh, to get up the does. hill on there the, you go. <laughs> on the Don Valley Parkway, and right. they're slipping down the hill, and everybody else is passing them. Well, right? There's no such thing as an all-season tire, right? There is no such thing in Canada that doesn't exist. I mean, an all-season tire might exist in, you know, Georgia. Yeah. Right, the it, all-season tire is almost more of a three-season tire. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, Where can people find out about Caltire? Caltire, the best source and the easiest source, of course, is going to be on our website, www.caltire.com. If you couldn't have figured that out on your own, but I guess in this day and age, you probably got it already. Um, But yeah, we've got 230 plus locations uh, across Canada, all fully stocked with winter tires, uh, all kinds of tires. But this is the time of year we're ready for winter and we're ready for you to come on down. Well, Candace, Amber, and Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. This is what she said. We'll be right back. Do you remember when you first fell in love with reading? Well, you weren't really reading, were you? No, your passion for books began quite another way. It was listening, wasn't it? To a story. Yes, your love of reading really got started when you were being read to. Kobo introduces audiobooks for the free Kobo app with a beautifully designed, easy to use player, one home for all your audiobooks and ebooks. Book lovers can listen to their heart's content for as little as $12.99 per month with subscription, and with a 30 day free trial, you get your first audiobook free. Sign up now at Kobo.com. Everyone needs an edge to compete. At the Chang School of Continuing Education at Ryerson University, our courses and programs will equip you with skills that are in demand in today's workplace. Enroll now at the Chang School at Ryerson University, where ambition meets professionalism. Boomer Nutrition Energy Protein Powder is the first protein supplement specifically designed for people over 40. Their research-based formula helps your body combat aging by maintaining lean muscle and slowing age-related muscle loss with added B vitamins for energy and leucine. Boomer Nutrition Protein Powder helps you increase metabolism and support a healthy lifestyle. Use code WSSRADIO at Amazon.ca to save 25%. Visit MyBoomerNutrition.com for details. Be ageless. Live your life with Boomer Nutrition. Feeding the family got you frantic? As feeding two teenage boys, I mean, at the end of the week, that's all I really want to do is save some money on my groceries. Is your fridge ever actually full? Oh, my, no. <laughs> I think I'm the only person that comes to a radio interview with a cooler. Not only was it so much fun, but it was super easy. And even my kids, when we cut into it last night, they even looked at it and they were like, Mom, you made this? I think you can do this in your sleep. Wholesome, on-budget fixes from foodie Charmaine Broughton on What She Said Talk. You're listening to What She Said with Christine Bentley and Kate Wheeler. Women positive news you can use on Jewel Radio. You broke my heart, it's just my funny way of laughing. Yes, my 
funny way of laughing. You're leaving. Welcome back to What She Said. Comedian Deborah Kimmett is finding the funny in tragedy with her brand new one woman show called The Year of the Suddenly. And she's here to tell us about it. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, the story starts out when you were teaching a writing workshop about the word suddenly, when suddenly, actually your whole life changed. Tell us what happened. Yes, I was in the middle of this uh, class in Oakville, and I get this text from my brother saying that my other brother, you know, was had a terminal illness. And uh, it was ironic because I was actually feeling the best I'd felt in a long time, and I was just, you know, and then I had to continue with the class. And then that took us on a year-long journey of getting to know each other as brother and sister. And it was one of those opportunities where we were all terrified, but at the same time, it was just really interesting how our whole relationship changed in that year and how we were really funny together and lots of sadness. But it was the, the show is all about learning about your family when you thought you knew them and you've, how we put each other in a box kind of thing. Well, I think we all do that to some degree. Um, yeah. And you, I, 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 my understanding is you and your brother were polar opposites in the yeah. sense of siblings. Now, I don't know. So it was you, one, and two brothers? No, there's six of us. Six of you. And he was the middle child, and he was the classic middle child, and he was an engineer, very smart, and he was so much smarter than us, but we didn't understand it, right? So Because we were all like, you know what? We just are street smart, you know, kind of thing. So he was always explaining life to us. So in the end, you know, when he had this illness, it was like I gave him this opportunity to be who he really was. But the, the comedy actually comes, I think, from... The fact that when someone is ill, you have all these preconceived notions of how <laughs> you're going to behave. And we, you know, life, it, it was pretty funny at times how poorly I did in these, you know, brother-sister moments. And uh, how, like, you know, you want to say I love you, but they're not on the same page that day. And it, 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 the comedy came out of my incompetence, as comedy usually does. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's funny when those moments in life happen, uh, how relationships change. <laughs> And at the end of the day, did you find your relationship hugely improved with him? Yes. And the thing was, he did nothing to change. It was just that I looked at him differently. And it was just that idea when there's an expiry date, you have this option to look at the person differently. Are you going to settle what, whatever that difference is? And in family, I always say they don't update your files on you for about 20 years. So you did something stupid when you're 10 and everyone's still talking about it. So, so you changed the lens, basically. Yeah, and I updated my files and I saw how clever he was and also how he saw the world was extremely different than me. And I, you know, comedian, I thought I was seeing it the right way. Ha ha ha. And he saw it completely differently. And it was funny to actually explore those conversations in this play. So, And I think sometimes we find out that Life would be terribly boring if we all saw things the same way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I like he's the kind that would be everything pragmatic. And I see that I'm more of an improv who, you know, doesn't know how anything's going to work out. <laughs> so it was really interesting to have him also, for the first time in his my life with him, him to want to know the other side of me. Like so it was the first time in, in my life he ever listened to me or any of my family in that particular way. So it was cool. Well... I think we all have expectations of how we would behave if someone close to us fell ill or how a dying person should behave. Absolutely. But you've basically turned those 
expectations or or how we think we're going to or things are going to be on their head in this show. Yeah. And I think the thing that's really fun to, to explore as a comedian was how, you know, everybody had these things like, you know, he's going to behave a certain way when he gets sick. And when he lies there on the deathbed, we're all going to be spiritual and like really just go to the light, go to the light. And meanwhile, everybody wasn't like that at all. No. And then we said all the goodbyes and he continued living and we were like, okay, now what do we do? And just also how uncomfortable we are just to even talk about that someone actually may die in this, that this is the the, the actual conversation. And so I make light of a lot of those things that we're just uncomfortable even mentioning today because you're not, that's like, it's almost like death has become some kind of failure, right? Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Now that you mention it, I, I think we are all uncomfortable talking about death. Yeah. And especially if you know somebody's dying, it's almost, you don't want to say it you say because it's but. offensive or something. Yes. And yet it's a guarantee that one of we will go out that way. So I wanted to just turn on its head how that's the expectation. And then also how um, I thought I had to be the helper, you know, and uh, he wanted just me to relate to him the way he was before he got sick. And we, yeah. you know, I put myself in the helper role and, and it was like, that didn't work. So I had to just talk to him as a, you know, one person to another. And I really learned a lot. And also, I never knew what day he was going to want what. So some days he was very serious and wanted to be profound. And then other days he'd say, tell me a joke, right? Mm-hmm. So I had to really kind of live in the moment, you know? So when did you actually write the show? And how therapeutic was that for you? Oh, it was therapeutic. In fact, it's it's really a funny show. I'm sounding like it's serious. But I really didn't know it was funny until I got on stage. I did it last spring for the first time. And... It was very therapeutic, and I thought I was saying all these, like, terribly big family secrets, and I was like, no, that's everybody's family. Like, we all do that to brothers and sisters. So I got, I did it at Second City in May, and Linda Cash, uh, she's an actress who did the Fargo series this year, and she's my director, and she had a loss in her life, so she just kept telling me to be honest, and that's what I did. Well... And and how have people reacted to it? They love it. I said, I feel like at the end, they all want me to hug them. And so thank God the audiences were that huge. But I was like, okay. A kumbaya moment? Yeah, like I say, <laughs> make, make your charitable donation at the door. Anyway, it was uh, it was extremely emotional. But people laughed their heads off because they all had had that experience if it, they'd had someone ill. So what can people expect at the show? Well, it's about a 70-minute show. It opens up with real funny... Um, funny, uh, very funny moment. And it's also a great musician. We have Nickel Robertson there. He's a country singer because my brother liked country. So we use music for the comedy. So it's a really fast 70-minute show. It starts at 7.30 at Second City. And I think you'll walk away just laughing your head off. Yeah. So it's, but it's only playing um, at, at Toronto's John Candy Box Theatre for two nights only, October yes. 17th and yeah. 18th. Um, where can people get tickets? Well, they can get it on the Second City website, thesecondcity.com, and just Google the Year of the Suddenly. And then I'm also doing it out of Toronto in Picton, and I'm, I'm taking a little tour of it. I'm just kind of building some following so that if I want to do a bigger launch in Toronto, that's what I'll do in the next year. Now, is this the first thing that you've written, like the first show that you've written? No, I've written 10 one-woman shows. 10 one-woman yes, shows? Yes, I've done comedy for 40 years, and I've written all one-woman shows about parts of my life, yeah. What What is the difference between the writing of it and the performing of it for you? <laughs> Sometimes when I'm performing, I'm like, who wrote this? Oh, me. Uh, yeah, you know what I mean? What the heck's that about? Yeah, so... Uh, 
It is. It's weird. I don't know why it should be the same thing, but it's not. Because when I'm writing it, it's very private. But then when I'm up in public, I'm like, I'm not saying this. This is crazy. Or I'll say, that doesn't make any sense. Start arguing with the writer, who happens to be me. Yes. Linda's going, you have to keep the lines the same. You wrote them that way. But as a comedian, once I know the lines, I can, you know, play off of that a lot. So there's a lot of talking to the audience and uh uh, I play around with them. If they start to cry, I give Kleenex, you know, and, yeah. and cookies in case you want a funeral lunch. Yeah. I've always wondered what it would be like to be performing something that I've that I may have written, not that I have that talent, either for performing or writing, but uh, and then, you know, feeling, do you have to stay true to it every time or can you kind of... Well, I memorize, I'm like a really clear memorizer, but then once I actually get on stage, I'm not quite sure what happens. So it changes with every show. In fact, I, I had to go back and look what I'd actually said in a film that I made of it because it was very different than what I'd written. And what do we think the next show will be about? Well, the next show is, it's going to be comic on a couch and it's that I'm getting so old, I don't do stand up anymore. I just do sitting on a couch telling comedy. That's a scream. <laughs> That's one nothing about death except my own death uh, as a person. Yeah, so I'm doing that and I'm, I'm doing little uh, Instagram videos to start and I've got a following. So I'm just building up the following for that. So Okay, so let's tell people again where they can get tickets. Well, you should come because, you know, I am getting older and uh, you never know. <laughs> 7.30 this Tuesday and Wednesday night at the Second City 99 Blue Jays Way. And if you don't want to get them ahead of time, there's lots of seats at the door. And the people can... Uh, Look you up online to find out where else you might be. Yes, I'm at kimmet.ca, K-I-M-M-E-T-T dot C-A. Well, thank you so much for joining us this evening. This was just a scream. I can't wait to see you. This is what she said. Stay with us. Passion is everything when it comes to hair, so trust your hair to an artist. Jason Kearns of Kearns & Co. is known across North America for making the hottest high fashion looks work for real people. Jason and his team of expert stylists bring together creativity, vision, and the very latest hair care systems, color, and products to create looks that have heads turning. Your hair is the most important fashion accessory you will ever own. Trust it to the experts. Start today. Visit kernsandco.com. Join us October 22nd at Bellevue Manor in Vaughan for a morning of fun, learning, and great camaraderie. Learn how to stay sharp as you age with guest speakers Dr. Vivian Brown, Dr. Nazarene Katri, and MC Camilla Scott. A wonderful morning of breakfast, entertainment, special treats, and all proceeds go to Mackenzie Health Foundation to support the Domestic Assault and Sexual Abuse Center. Go to thejoyofaging.ca for more info and see you on October 22nd. And now, more women-positive news you can use. This is What She Said. What She Said with Christine Bentley and Kate Wheeler on Jewel Radio. What you are listening to is Ain't It Sad, Sister, by singer-songwriter Eileen Joyce. Welcome back to What She Said. Thanks. Now, we had you on the show uh, a few weeks ago to talk about the Pulmonary Fibrosis Freedom Society's Freedom Gala that you have yes. put together. That's coming up on October 20th. What are you most excited about? Um, singing with Jackie and Leela and all of the gang that'll be there. The Toronto uh, All-Star Big Band will be there. 
Um, just uh, having the melatones there, the uh, lung group that is singing uh, from our Singing to Breathe classes, and um, just everything. It's going to be fabulous. Well, you, you told us that, that you were diagnosed in 2008 with IPF, that's idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, and right. that inspired your album, Life is Too Short. What was one of the biggest things that you have learned through living with IPF? Um, one of the biggest things, I guess, is, is when you're not handicapped, you don't realize how much the little things make a difference for handicapped people, um, how much scents and sprays really do affect a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, and it is a scent free gala. So, uh, all of those things really come to impact when you're impacted with something that, you know, you can't walk as far to the car, you can't open that door because you just don't have the energy. That mm -hmm. kind of thing has, mm -hmm. has happened. Certainly. Stairs are stairs issue. are like an ominous mountain that must be climbed <laughs> slowly. <laughs> slowly and carefully. Um, now, you're going to be performing Just Me and the Boy for, for us today. Tell us what that song is about. Well, that particular song is about my band um, and how I knew when I when I was uh, told you're going off to Toronto uh, at some point in the next couple of years to definitely, you know, try and get you on the transplant list. Um, that was inspired me about, uh, about how wonderful it is to be with my band on stage. That is one of my most favorite times of my life. So what is your message, if you have one, for other people out there with IPF who are struggling? To do as much as you can. And be happy with all that you do. Find the things that you love the best and go do them. Uh, singing uh, is definitely everyone can do it. And it is helpful for breathing um, if you're doing it properly. Um, if you have lung issues, you can come to our Singing to Breathe workshop at the Toronto Western, uh, which is part of where these funds will go. And, uh, you know, just be as happy as you can in every moment that you have. Absolutely. Well, Eileen, thank you very much for joining us tonight. People can get tickets to the Pulmonary Fibrosis Freedom Society's Freedom Gala. That's on October 20th at pf-freedom.org. We'll put up a link on our website. What She Said will be back tomorrow night. Find us online at whatshesaidtalk.com. Now, singing us out, here is Eileen Joyce with just me and the boy. Thank you. About my troubles and such Time to toss those blues outside I've been in so much pain Cried a river of tears Haven't had a good time Well, it's been years But tonight's the night I'm gonna have some fun Shake off my troubles And the blues on the run I've been broken so long I forgot how to sing By God, tonight I'm gonna let it ring Just me and the boys Singing the blues Gonna tear down my house And tell you the news Put your dancing shoes on Come on, touch your stuff Me and the boys Oh, we can't get enough Ooh, me and the boys Ooh, me and the boys Bands playing hot, yeah, the blues disappear. 
This is the spot I wanna stay here. No worries, no trouble. Come find a way in. Come on, boys, play it again. Just me and the boys singing the blues. Gonna tear down the house and tell you the news. Put your dancing shoes on. Come on, stretch your stuff. Me and the boys, oh, we can't get enough. Disappear. This is the spot I want to stay here. No worries or trouble can find a way in. Come on, boys, play it again. Just me and the boys singing the blues. Gonna tear down the house and tell you the news. Put your dancing shoes on. Come on, stretch your stuff. Me and the boys, oh, we can't get enough. Just me and the boys. Singing the blues, gonna tear down the house and tell you the news. Put your dancing shoes on, come on, stretch your stuff. Me and the boys can't get enough. Get enough. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, 4Kids Flashback. 4Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.